Hi, and welcome to the Naturamama podcast. My name's Spectalia, I'm a qualified naturopath, and I'm your host. Previously on the Naturamama podcast, we spoke to Dom from Eat Cannoli, and today we'll be speaking to Rebecca Hughes about food intolerances. Today, I'm joined by Rebecca Hughes, naturopath extraordinaire. Rebecca has worked as a regulator of medicines with the TGA, as a lecturer at Endeavour College in Melbourne, and has authored and peer-reviewed naturopathic texts. Currently, she's in clinical practice in Melbourne, and she's super passionate about helping those with skin conditions such as acne and eczema. Thanks for joining us today, Rebecca. You're welcome. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you end up getting involved in the naturopathic industry? You know what? A lot of people have asked me that question, and I think I used to have a very logical explanation for it, which is there probably was a lot of influence from my father who was a bit of a hippie and, you know, he was making kefir and growing kombucha well before any of the hipsters in Melbourne were doing it um, (laughs) about you know, about 25 years ago. Um, Before it was cool. You know, probably at the time I didn't appreciate the full value of that and, like, all teenagers, like, rebelled against it. And, uh, you know, I sort of came full circle, I suppose, with in my life after some travelling and when, okay, you know, this is, this is what I want to do with my life. Yeah. You know, serve people and help people. That's awesome. And so um, I spoke a little bit about how you like, you're quite passionate about skin conditions, uh, you know, in your, as your clinical focus, but are there any other areas that you focus on within your clinic? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think when we talk about a condition, whether it be skin conditions or any other condition, and we as naturopaths know that it's never just related to one part of the body or one organ or one system or anything like that, but you know, people come to me with skin conditions because it troubles them and it's sometimes uncomfortable, embarrassing, both. But really, you know, there's a lot of underlying causes that are going on that resulted in that skin condition. So usually, you know, I end up treating a lot of other things as well as their skin. So probably the most obvious area would be um, digestive health. So, you know, everyone's kind of... um, raving about the microbiome at the moment. It's a very popular topic. Um, It's been a popular topic with naturopaths, I'd say, for about 50 years. And um, (laughs) (laughs) It's now in vogue. Now it's cool. (laughs) Yeah, now it's very in vogue. So not just microbiome but also the integrity and the health of the digestive system. So usually what I find with people who have eczema, for example, is that they have a lot of not just inflammation on the outside of their body, but inflammation on the inside of their body. So a lot of focus gets put on repairing the inside as well as the outside. So, yes, digestive health, um, probably what comes along with that is a lot of um, people who have, um, I suppose, what falls under the banner of irritable bowel-like complaints, which, you know, probably doesn't really describe what those people deal with adequately, I think. Irritable bowel makes it sound... Like it's something almost psychological, but, you know, people who deal with that deal with a lot of discomfort, a lot of uncertainty and anxiety, you know, like, you know, one of my patients has has panic disorder as a result of yeah. urgent, frequent bowel motions that, you know, she can't necessarily control and is worried about going out in public. Now that's, 
that's a big impact on someone's quality of life. So, you know, things like that I enjoy treating. And alongside acne, I end up treating a lot of female hormone issues like premenstrual tension, fertility issues, painful heavy periods, irregular periods. So yeah, even though it sounds like I just treat skin conditions, there's all these other things that that go alongside it that also have to be um, managed and corrected. Tell me a little bit more about this digestive disturbance side of things that underlies, I suppose, the skin conditions because, you know, most people are fairly familiar with skin conditions generally. Well, look, I suppose the, the main skin conditions that I see that are related to gut health are eczema and dermatitis. To some extent, maybe psoriasis, but in fact, not all people with psoriasis actually, I've, I've noticed, experience digestive conditions. Yeah. But eczema, I would say, would be a very, very typical one where there's either, not either, but often things like um, pain, constipation, reactions to foods that seem unpredictable and unexplained. Like there's, you know, sometimes eating a food and feeling okay, and then sometimes eating a similar food, like maybe from the similar food from the same group, yeah. and experiencing discomfort, pain, heartburn. And it seems to be very unpredictable and difficult to to track and to sort of form into a pattern. Yeah. I find there are types of patients who come to me and go, I just really don't understand. Like I, I eat something and I'm fine and then I eat something that's just like it and I'm not fine anymore. So yeah. I find they're typically the types of patients that I see um, where there's a connection but there's a relationship between what's going on, on this, in their skin and what's going on in their gut. And I suppose with those sorts of adverse food reactions or food triggers with that side of things, you'd be looking more at food intolerances, wouldn't you, as part of the picture? Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a few different, and food intolerances as distinct from food allergy because food allergy is, you know, it's much more serious. It's usually a very immediate response. It's in sometimes, you know, uh, quite dramatic and life-threatening. And usually identified quite easily and early on in life. Like it's something, if someone has a food allergy, they know that they've got a food allergy. It's been detected generally in childhood and they're managed medically for that particular condition. And it's something I find that people use as words interchangeably in everyday conversation. I'm allergic to this, I'm allergic to that, when in actual fact it's an intolerance. That's right. So food intolerances, I find there's there's three main Oh, yeah, three main types that I see in practice. There's salicylates, amines, and glutamates. Yes. Sometimes called SAGs for want of a, <laughs> an abbreviation. Oh, I love a good acronym. That is the best. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds terrible, but it's easier than saying the three words over and over. Great. Um, and those food chemicals occur naturally in really healthy foods. There's nothing actually wrong with the types of foods that, that they come from. But unfortunately, it usually comes from the really flavoursome fruits and vegetables and herbs. That's where a lot of those food chemicals hang out is like tomatoes and herbs and spices and celery and bananas and citrus fruit and berries. You know, they're all the really yummy things that those food chemicals are in. And some people are intolerant to some of them, like maybe only salicylates, and some people can be intolerant to more than one of those groups. There's no testing, unfortunately, for that type of food chemical, it really is a case of, you know, with the help of a clinician identifying that you probably do have 
intolerances to that and then guidance on how to remove those foods from your diet for a period of time and supporting your organs of detoxification while you're doing that. Stomach and, sorry, gut and liver usually is what we focus on. And then there's IgG food intolerances, which is immune mediated. An allergy is immune mediated, but an IgG food intolerance is also immune mediated, but it's a different arm of your immune system. So yeah, those types of food intolerances we can measure through a blood spot, uh, and which is you know a small amount of blood taken from your finger, and we can measure that immune response that you have to those foods. So it's a very handy test. Yes, yes. and a very handy diagnose, diagnostic tool. Yes, yeah, and a lot faster than an elimination diet, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 much, much <laughs> faster. And that's where we're seeing if your immune system has, if it actually is having a reaction to different foods and. Typically, the foods that we see people have intolerances to are eggs, dairy, gluten, and I would say some nuts and seeds are fairly common reactions as well, like almonds and sesame. But some people can have reactions to other things as well. And then there's other types of food intolerances that people have probably heard about called FODMAP food intolerances. They tend to not be systemic, I find, more as in like they don't really affect the skin or other organs and tissues, it's more that they just are localised to the gut. So they commonly affect those people that have um, that IBS, like irritable bowel-like picture. Yes. So they're the, the three main types. And, and I forgot to mention also that some people, particularly some kids, have intolerances to colours and flavours and food additives as yes. well. Yes, yes, that's quite common too. And definitely see it more in children than anywhere else. Tell me a little bit about salicylates, a little bit more about salicylates, um, amines and all the SAGs, fun, fun times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what sort of foods would contain salicylates, for example, and what kind of foods would you be looking out for um, that contained amines and so on? Mm. Uh, salicylates tend to be more concentrated in fruits and vegetables. Yep. They're not really in meats and fish and grains. So Really high ones are citrus, berries, the nightshade family, so, you know, eggplant, capsicum, tomatoes, and in lots of herbs as well, probably all the herbs except maybe parsley. And so there's grades, and when you do a salicylate, with any of these SAGs, when you do a a diet that's eliminating them, you're usually never really truly eliminating them. You're just choosing a level of tolerance and going, okay, we're going to pare your diet down to... Uh, foods that contain moderate levels of salicylates or low levels of salicylates. And it kind of depends on, I suppose, how extreme the reaction is. But yeah, I find salicylates are mostly in fruits and vegetables, which what makes them so difficult to yes. do an elimination. Yes. And you know, I'm not, I don't want to make it sound really difficult for people out there, but you know, I think that's why you do need guidance because it may not be possible to eliminate salicylates and amines at the same time. It may not be practical for that person. Yes. So you've kind of got to, through questioning you, as a practitioner, you usually figure out which which foods it is that are causing the problems. So that's salicylates. And amines I find are more in aged, they're aged foods, so aged cheeses, um, preserved meats, tinned fish, they are ran, also in bananas, really high in bananas. That's what that smell is when bananas become really ripe is the amines. Well, that must be what I don't like about them. Yeah. 
<laughs> Interestingly, same smell in, um, and I think constituent in wheat beers. Have you ever oh, noticed yeah. how wheat beer smells like bananas? And glutamates tend to be more in flavour enhancers, um, like obviously the most obvious one is monosodium glutamate, but I think it's also naturally occurring in, glutamates are naturally occurring in celery, which is probably why it's so great for socks and, uh, stocks and soups, also tomato. So, yeah, there's, a, yeah, like you said, a lot of uh, foods that people would be naturally including in the diet to have a healthy diet, and so it's not really practical or responsible to cut them all out, is it really? So, uh, yeah, and, and particularly not for long periods of time. Yeah. I suppose when people come in with those sorts of, uh, they've noticed that they're having an adverse reaction to food, that it's not settling them, what kinds of things do you do or ask uh, to sort of find out, I suppose, what might be underlying? Usually what I'm asking, and again, I notice salicylate amines, glutamates, I don't know if you experience this, but I think I find it's more a more common sensitivity in kids than adults. Yes. And I think that's got a lot to do with the dose per kilo of body weight because children can eat a lot. They can actually sometimes eat as much as an adult except that their body weight might be a third or a half of, yeah. a, of an average adult. So the dose that they're getting in their foods is really high compared to their their weight. So then their ability to eliminate those foods naturally through their liver and their gut is a lot slower because there's just less of them, you know, yes. in terms of mass. And then also I find they tend, kids tend to gravitate toward the foods that are really tasty. Like small children love to eat berries. They yes. just love them, you know, like depending on what their berry of choice is, but they will either really be into strawberries or blueberries or raspberries. And we'll literally and eat punnets of them at a time as well. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. they're usually um, loading up on those types of foods as well. Or it might be, of course, bolognese sauce, really popular yeah. food with kids, really, really concentrated amount of tomato in one meal. It's, not, it's pureed tomato usually plus some tomato paste. Pizza yeah. is the same thing, you know, lots of really concentrated tomato, tomato sauce. Yes. that's often used as a condiment for children. So they're eating high amounts of these foods and juices, kids tend to drink more juice than adults, really high concentration of salicylates in, in there. So usually what I'm asking about is what are their dietary choices? Like what are the things that they really love to eat that if you let them they would just, like you said, consume whole punnets of them? Yeah. And it's often... It can often be those foods. And, I've um, noticed that too. It's always the foods people love. And then they really dislike me when I eliminate them yeah. from their diets. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I was just thinking about um, fruit leathers and stuff like oh, that. They're also really popular with lunch boxes. Yeah, and really concentrated source of fruit. Yeah. So, yes. um, so foods like that. And often I find, not often, sometimes those kids who have the salicylate intolerance experience a reaction around their lips when they eat them. So it's not like a dangerous, like a swelling that happens with the food allergy, but they often get some redness and some itchiness around their lips if they've been eating a lot of those foods that disagree with them. Absolutely. And so yeah. um, once you remove the trigger food from someone's diet, what kinds of things do you expect to happen? I think the improvement is um, often a little bit faster than with IgG food intolerances. I don't know if you notice that, but I find that the if it's itchiness particularly is the symptom that it 
it starts to remit within a couple of weeks. Whereas I find with IgG food intolerances, sometimes it actually can take a couple of months for those. I mean, the symptoms will definitely improve, but it could take two to three months for them to go away completely. Yes. And, And that's with assistance. So there's different kinds of assistance that's offered depending on the type of food intolerance. But almost always we're working on restoring some, like reducing inflammation in the gut and restoring integrity. So that could look like um, different powders that contain glutamine, zinc, A to um, improve the gut integrity. But then reducing inflammation can, can look a number of ways. Like it could look like aloe vera, turmeric, boswellia, um, Albizia, like there's a bunch of herbs that we can prescribe as well that reduce that really strong histamine response that they're experiencing and then improving that gut integrity and maybe even supporting the liver as well to remove those food chemicals or remove those food antigens. In the case of IgG, it's an antigen that needs to be removed. And uh, getting back to, I suppose, what your dad's favourite topic might be, do you tend to support the microbiome as well? (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do support the microbiome mostly because of its immune modulating effect. Like as in it's an indirect effect that we're having and it's an indirect effect over time. I don't tend to think that prescribing certain uh, antiprobiotics is going to immediately relieve someone's symptoms but I think over time it's going to be a really helpful thing to do because if that person is having reactions to foods, like strong reactions to foods, it tells me something about their immune system in general, that it's highly sensitive and that the, the, the normal regulation that happens within the immune system isn't happening for that person. Yeah. And so we need to encourage it to happen. And one of the main ways, ways that we do that is actually through the gut. And more and more of the research is pointing to that that a great part of how our immune system regulates itself is through the gut health, the large bowel health. And so with things like uh, kefir and kombucha and all those sorts of uh, probiotic foods, do you tend to recommend that people use those as well as, say, a probiotic supplement? I do recommend (laughs) if they can tolerate them. Like if they don't have... If they don't have any gut symptoms, but also some of the problems with the um, fermented foods is that they can actually be really high in salicylates and amines. So if someone has a salicylate and amine intolerance, the fermented foods like sauerkraut and kombucha and kefir can actually aggravate their symptoms. But if it's an IgG intolerance, it's probably not going to do that. And and this is, I think, the reason why it's so important to work out exactly what kind of intolerance you're dealing with. Because then it shapes the type of dietary practices that you can do. And I think... I think, and one of my patients interestingly said this to me yesterday. She's a brand new patient. She came in with her son and she said, I've been reading everything on the internet and I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know what I should do. I don't know which path I should go down. Should I take this out? Should I take that out? Should I bring these fermented foods in? Like, should I go paleo? Like it's all, I think there's a lot of general health advice out there for overall health and well-being. And whilst applicable to overall health and well-being, it's not actually most of it that applicable to people who are currently dealing with fairly significant symptoms that are impacting their health. I think that's yeah. when, like all things in life, you actually need to go and consult 
the appropriate health professional. Yes. Whoever that might be, rather than trying to lead your own treatment and guess what's going on. Yes, yeah. And we're all guilty of Dr. Googling it, but he's not always the best way to go. No. <laughs> yeah, you're and, you can, and, you know, inadvertently scare the hell out of yourself as well when you Dr. Google because you might be thinking that you you have diseases that you don't actually have. You know, yes, that's, yes, that's very true. It causes a lot of uh, anxiety and fear, I find, in people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I love to bust a myth. So if there's one myth about what you do as part of your practice, what is it and why or how is it a myth? I reckon a myth would be that all naturopaths will ask you to come off gluten and dairy as part of your management and treatment. That's a good myth because a lot of people think that. A lot of people think that, yeah. yeah. And, and it's often the reason that has them not go and see a naturopath because they're scared that they're going to be asked to come off all these foods, go on a rabbit food diet, not drink any coffee, not drink any alcohol, you know, basically have a fun-free life if you see a naturopath. And yes, I don't, notorious. We're notorious for that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not the way I practice, you know. I think um, there has to be a degree of, of livability, you know, if, if that's even a word. There's got to be a way that people can still function in life, still be social, still have fun and manage their health at the same time and and again that's why I think that seeing someone who's qualified to help you understand what's going on with your body is a good idea because you might actually be unnecessarily already limiting um, what you're doing in your life you know you may not actually have to take out certain things but but you're doing it because you think that that's it's the thing to do yes you know that's going to solve the problem Exactly. And I suppose there's also things inherently which occur alongside of that. So if you're on a very restrictive diet, then um, you're missing out on different nutrients if you're not covering your bases with those sorts of things. Exactly. And, you know, that's a very common thing that happens. One really common thing I see with people who who think that they have FODMAP intolerances or have been told that they have FODMAP intolerances are told to, and I'm probably going to upset a few people when I say this next, but they've been told to take FODMAPs out of their diet altogether forever to solve their irritable bowel syndrome. Now, doing a FODMAP-free diet for a short period of time is really useful for reducing symptoms for people who have IBS or or SIBO. It's really useful. It helps bring back comfort in their their life and some certainty and, and a lot less pain. And it's valuable for that period of time, but in and of itself, it's probably not diagnostic. Like it's not helping us work out what's really the underlying cause for this person. Is it because they were prescribed too many antibiotics and proton pump inhibitors? Is it because when they went to Bali, they got a Giardia infection and they've had a, a irritable bowel since then, yes. but it's never really been treated? Or you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why someone might have a FODMAP intolerance, but if you take out all of those foods for long periods of time, you can actually totally disrupt the health of the the microbiome in the large bowel because, in fact, all those FODMAP foods contain prebiotic foods and prebiotic means those foods that actually feed the beneficial bowel flora. So, in fact, it can be detrimental to take those foods out of your diet in the long term and you've got to find a way to reintroduce them. And I believe there are ways, and I've done it with patients, I've helped them reintroduce foods that they thought that they couldn't eat any longer. I think that's that's part of it that you've... 
that unnecessarily reducing and limiting your diet can have other health impacts. Absolutely. There's one thing that you wanted someone to take away from this uh, episode, what would it be? I suppose it's everything that I that I just said. It's like um, <laughs> I love it because um, you're equally as passionate about food intolerances as I. <laughs> All the things I said are important. <laughs> oh well, actually, no. There's something else that I wanted to say about food intolerances, and it's it's not. It doesn't just show up in the skin, and it doesn't just show up in the gut. It shows up a lot, as I'm sure you will know, with um, immune problems. And I find it's often the cause of recurrent. Recurrent colds, coughs and flus, recurrent tonsillitis, recurrent middle ear infections, recurrent sinusitis, anything to do with the airways, even um, reactive airways like asthma or croup, it can be the thing that's driving that. And I saw this very dramatically for myself recently in practice. I was treating a a nine-year-old girl and... Her mum originally brought her in to see me because she'd been diagnosed with acne. Ah, nine-year-old. A nine-year-old, yes, diagnosed with acne, which, in fact, I don't agree with the diagnosis. I mean, she had some, she had a rash of these small spots across her forehead, but it, you know, she wasn't prepubescent. She wasn't having any other signs of hormonal development as a young, as a girl, you know, and, but she had a lot of other sort of seemingly unrelated symptoms where she had some gut pain and food refusal. She had snoring, like really pronounced snoring and enlarged tonsils. Interestingly, had just started to develop body odour and her mother, and she was getting really concerned about it because she was getting teased at school for having body odour and the spots on her forehead. I thought, I, you know, I trusted myself in that I think this is related to food. Because they're all so, it's affecting, and particularly IgG food intolerances, because it was affecting at least three systems of her body at the same time. Yeah. So I tested for food intolerances and she was highly, highly intolerant to dairy and moderately intolerant to gluten. So, and she was, by the way, scheduled for a tonsillectomy. Oh, wow. And I said to her mum, can you just please hold off and give me a little bit of time because I think I can turn this around. And within three months later, she went back to see her ENT who could not believe the results. He said, her tonsils have gone back to normal size. That's incredible. And she doesn't need a tonsillectomy anymore. And she'd stopped snoring and the rash had gone away. And her mum was like, oh, even that, because I asked her, what about that body odour? And she's like, oh, yeah, I haven't actually noticed that for a long time. That's also gone away. Amazing. Yeah. And look, it wasn't... I'm not going to say that it was completely seamless, the transition to a gluten and dairy-free diet. It was hard for her to start with. It was hard for, and this is what I think really makes the difference, her mum was really committed to this working for her daughter and so was taking a lot of actions to create dietary choices that were really, um, you know, really tasty for her and that she could take in her lunchbox and that it was just easy for her so that, then also that the food itself didn't become a stigma. Like she still had a relatively normal lunchbox like all the other kids, but it was food that really suited her. So, you know, I mean, that has far-reaching effects. That's not just that those physical symptoms have gone away. She doesn't have to worry about being at school anymore, being teased about how her skin looks and, and that she smells. I mean, because yes, yes. that stuff can be 
really damaging for little kids to be to be teased like that. Absolutely. I think that's one thing I just as a takeaway because I know that I've been focusing a lot on skin, but in fact, um, IgG food intolerances and also salicylates and, and amines and glutamates can also affect the respiratory system, so ear, nose, throat, lungs, as well as skin and gut. Absolutely. Well, if people want to find you, where can they find you in both the real world and the virtual world? Oh, well, in the virtual world, they can find me at Natural Skin Medicine in Clifton Hill. So, and that's www.naturalskinmedicine.com.au. I have a Facebook page called Natural Skin Medicine, where if people want to put up comments and ask questions and interact that way, that's great as well. Yeah, and I offer 20-minute complimentary consultations that if anyone would like to just have a chat about whether naturopathy can be of benefit to them, then I'm happy to do that too. I'll pop all that information on the podcast episode listing anyway so no one has to write it down madly while they're driving or anything like that. Well, thanks for um, chatting to us today, Rebecca. That was really, really interesting and um, I'm sure people found it fascinating how skin and gut and food intolerances can all work in together as well. Oh, look, I really hope so because I know that sometimes I get really passionate about it and I'm not sure if other people are as passionate about it as me, but I also, you know, I'm keen to get the message out there that there are solutions beyond cortisone and corticosteroids and, you know, there's there's lots of other ways to to deal with these health issues. Nice, fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. On the next episode, we'll be speaking to Tanya Delahoy about tired mums. Thank you for listening to the Natural Mama podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Listening to this podcast is no substitute for seeing a qualified health practitioner. Everybody is different, and the advice and opinions in this podcast cannot take into account individual circumstances and is not intended to take the place of seeing a healthcare or medical professional or seeking medical advice. Before starting any new health regimes, or if you have any concerns about your health, please seek advice from a qualified health professional to see if it is right for you and your circumstances.